This interview was reposted with permission from Jenny Atia's ThoughtCast. Visit ThoughtCast today at ThoughtCast.com. You're listening to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atia, and I'm sitting in the office of the physics professor Alex Valenkin at Tufts University. I have his new book open. It's called Many Worlds in One, The Search for Other Universes. And as I read it, I learn that there's another Jenny Atia, in fact, an infinite number of us, holding this same book in this same office with the same Alex Valenkin. Did I get that right, Alex? Precisely. <laughs> You are the director of the Institute of Cosmology here at Tufts, and you have resources at your disposal. How is your search for other universes going? Well, it is, uh, it's going pretty well, I should say. Unfortunately, we cannot travel to other universes because they are too far away. Actually, even light cannot travel to them, so they are causally disconnected from us. We cannot influence anything that is happening there, and uh, the inhabitants cannot influence us. However, we can look for indirect evidence for the existence of these universes, and this is what we are trying to do here. Give me an idea of what that would look like, indirect evidence. What kind of indirect evidence are you looking for? Well, much of it is necessarily theoretical, much of the work involved here. So this whole research is based on the new picture of the universe that has emerged from recent work in cosmology, And it turns out, according to this picture, that our universe is a much bigger place than we thought it is. We can see only a small part of the universe, which is set by the distance light could travel since the Big Bang. And uh, you cannot help wondering what is beyond that. And until recently, people thought, well, it's more of the same. It's more stars, more galaxies. But according to this new picture, distant parts of the universe are strikingly different from what we have around here. And some of these parts are even characterized by different laws of physics, with different constants of nature, as we call them, like gravitational constant that determines the strength of gravity and so forth. So we develop a theory to understand how these different properties are distributed in the universe and try to, from there, predict what we are likely to observe here in our local region. When you think about other universes and when you're working towards developing theories about what's out there. What do you imagine in your mind? What are these uh, geometrical shapes? Well, basically, you can ask, what, what does this universe, uh, big universe, looks like with, with all these different regions? And basically, much of it is in the state of explosive accelerated expansion, which is called inflation. And regions like ours, where inflation ended, are constantly being formed. And they're like islands in this inflating sea. So when we do this computer simulation, this is what it looks like. It looks like archipelago uh, with kind of the sea, which represents inflating part of the universe. And in it, there are these islands, which once formed are rapidly expanding, but the distances between them are growing even faster. And this opens up new space for new little islands to form, which also start expanding. So with this archipelago of yours in your imagination, where are the other Alex Valenkins, and why do you believe they're out there? Well, um, let's see. We, we, have the, uh, we live in one of these islands in the archipelago, and this island keeps growing. So it will continue growing forever. So it will become infinite. And in it, there will be an infinite number of galaxies, 
And therefore, there will be an infinite number of regions like the one we can observe. We call them all regions, right? the observable region. The key point here is that the number of possible histories that can happen in a given O region in a finite amount of time is finite. It's a huge number, but it is a finite number. You might think that you could change things slightly. For example, I move my chair, say, one centimeter, and I have another history. I can move it half centimeter, yet another history, and apparently I can have an infinite number of histories right there. But according to quantum mechanics, histories that are very close to one another cannot be told apart, cannot be distinguished from one another, even in principle. So you have a finite number of histories, which we estimated it's 10 to the power, 10 to the power 150. It's an incredible, unimaginably large number. However, you have an infinite number of regions where this finite number of histories are being played out. Inevitably, all histories that have a non-zero probability to happen will happen, and they will happen an infinite number of times. Therefore, we are having this conversation in many different parts of our island universe and in other islands as well. Alex Valenkin, what is it like for you to think that there are a whole bunch of other Alex Valenkins running around out there experiencing what you experience, thinking what you think? Um, well, actually, I got very depressed about this. I didn't like it at all. And the most upsetting thing about it is kind of the loss of uniqueness, that uh, you may think that our civilization here is good or bad, but... At least it is uh, unique, you would think, and we should treasure it like you would treasure a work of art. But uh, if you are told that, you know, there is an infinite number of things exactly like that, it's kind of depressing. Um, so what happened after you were depressed? What did you do? Where did you go from there, intellectually? Well, it's not that I did much. Uh, I told, I discussed this with people, and... I noticed that everybody has different reactions. Some people thought it was fine. They said, okay, there are many places much better than uh, we have here. Some suggested that I should practice Buddhism, that it would help. One thing that I found uh, interesting is there is a, uh, one fellow that I know who is a biologist, and um, he told me that basically that the origin of life is not a very well understood thing, and that uh, it appears that it, is an it requires some extremely unlikely event to occur. And he said that, well, maybe in the entire visible universe, not in the entire multiverse, which of course is um, infinite, maybe there is uh, no other intelligent life. So in that case, we may feel at least somewhat special and feel some responsibility for our part of the universe. You're listening to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atia, and I'm speaking with the physicist Alex Vilenkin. This is a layman's question, and you've probably been asked it far too many times in your life, but if our universe is infinite and expanding, how could there possibly be room for some other universe <laughs> to fit in and expand infinitely as well? Where would it fit? Yeah, well, this is, uh, this is a very good question. It is, it is not easy to picture this. Basically, this apparent discrepancy is due to the different notions of time that are more suitable in, when you try to 
viewed the universe from different angles. When you say that the, whether the universe is finite or infinite, or say if you ask what is the shape of the universe, is it uh, flat, infinite space, as uh, people thought uh, for a long time, or maybe it closes on itself as a sphere, you're asking about its shape at a given moment of time. Right? So time is crucial here. And uh, if you take one of these islands in the archipelago, at what time are we measuring the size of this island? If you want to take a global point of view, you want to see the whole inflating sea with all these islands, then each of the islands is finite and it's growing. But now suppose we are inside one of the islands, then the most natural choice of time is from the Big Bang. And the Big Bang is kind of happening all the time at the boundaries of the island as it expands into this inflating sea. So if you look at the island in its entirety, and you say, at every point, we start counting at the Big Bang. Then the island becomes infinite. And from this point of view, this island is totally self-contained. And inflation is in your past. It's not, you cannot travel from the island to the inflating sea, just as you cannot travel to the past. Uh, these are very mind-twisting properties of Einstein's theory of gravitation, which is a curved space-time. And it takes uh, a bit to get used to. Speaking of the past and of time, Alex Valenkin, you have gone back in time before the Big Bang and asked the question, how did the Big Bang start? What fueled it? And you've come up with a very interesting idea of the non-existence of time. Before the creation of anything, there was no space or matter. And if there's no space or matter, there's nothing that can happen in a period of time so that, therefore, we are going back to a timeless period of time. <laughs> Tell me, put it in your own words, please. <laughs> well, you're talking about the creation of the universe. This is the question of how inflation started. How it all started. How it all started. <laughs> and when this idea of eternal inflation came up, some people thought that this is very good. Now we don't have to worry about how everything started. If inflation is eternal to the future, then maybe it is also eternal to the past. And so this is what's going on forever. So we don't have to worry about the beginning, which is a very thorny question for physicists. However, it turns out that you cannot extend inflation to the infinite past. We proved the theorem to that effect with uh, Arvind Border and Alan Guth, which shows that this is impossible. So there must be, have been a beginning. And then the question is what kind of beginning that was. If, even before I start answering, you can tell, okay, and, 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 and I'll ask you what happened before that. Um, but your answer is nothing. Right. That, that answer is better because <laughs> what happened before that, nothing uh, also. So the picture that I developed, it's a mathematical description. It's not that you just say that it came out of nothing because uh, people laughed at me even when I had mathematical description at the beginning. But um, it's a mathematical model which describes a tiny closed universe which pops out of literally nothing. There was no matter, no space, and no time before. Uh, you, you said that uh, it's uh, time with the... How did you say it? That it was... Um, time before time. Time before time. <laughs> Actually, uh, yeah, I, I discovered that um, St. Augustine came up with a very similar idea. He was uh, perplexed with the question of what God was doing before he created heaven and earth. And if he was doing nothing, then why did he not continue to do nothing forever? And he uh, 
concluded that time was created with the universe, that before there was universe, it's meaningless to talk about time. And so the question of what God was doing before has no meaning. In your work, Alex Valenkin, you look back before the creation, before the concept of time, and you do believe that something did exist, which was a law, like a mathematical equation, that gave birth. There was no time, space, or matter, but there was a law. Yeah, this is the most perplexing question of all, uh, that uh, this mathematical model that describes creation of the universe out of nothing it is based on the same equations of physics that describe the following evolution of the universe. So this seems to suggest that these equations were there even when the universe was not, and it's not clear in what form they were there. Basically, you might think that equations of physics suggest descriptions of the universe, but it's strange to think the description existed before the universe itself. Which some people might use as an explanation for God or a um, proof of God, an equation floating around out there, out in nowhere. <laughs> uh, Is God an equation? Yes, you know, when I came up with this idea of creation of the universe from nothing, I thought that theologians uh, would love it. Uh, but in fact, uh, many of them hated it, uh, basically because it uh, gives a natural explanation to the origin of the universe. Well, they haven't read their Augustine, have they? Or they would be more comfortable. Well, some of, the, some of them did. And uh, actually, when I went to some meetings with uh, theologians who were very sophisticated theologians, and I discovered to my surprise that practically every question that I was struggling with, they were struggling with too, only in a somewhat different formulation. And Augustine is a good example. This is the question of what caused the universe to form if if there was nothing before, then how the universe could be caused and so forth. And they ask the same questions about God. Your equation, which explains, for lack of a better term, the birth of the universe, the universes, is it a simple, beautiful equation? Or is it a big, fat, massive, complex one? It, it is very simple. Can you tell me what it is? Well, it is, uh, basically, it is a geometric shape and it consists of two parts. Part of it, it describes this process which is called tunneling, quantum tunneling. Uh, it's uh, in quantum mechanics, particles and other objects can penetrate through barriers, something that cannot do in classical physics. And so classi uh, in classical physics, the universe could not appear from nothing. But in quantum mechanics, it, it's possible. And part of this geometric shape is just a sphere. It's a four-dimensional sphere, and it describes the process of tunneling. A sphere is characterized by just one number. This is a radius. And uh, there is another part uh, of this image which describes the subsequent evolution of this uh, universe. Basically, the big circle of the sphere, kind of the largest section of the sphere, this is the universe when it is born. And the pole of the sphere is the point from which it starts. And you argue that there was no need for any cause for this to happen. In a universe based on quantum theory, cause is not necessary. That's right. Uh, quantum theory is a probabilistic theory. And uh, if you take, for example, a radioactive atom, it will decay. You know for sure it will decay. But you cannot tell when. 
right? You can calculate its lifetime, which tells you that after a certain time, it's likely to decay. But you can ask, what is the reason that it decayed at this particular moment? There is no reason. It's just a probabilistic process, which happens with some probability per unit time. And actually, uh, radioactive decay is very similar to the creation of the universe. You don't really need a cause. There is a probability for this to happen, so it happens. You mentioned that with radioactive decay, there's a probability that it will happen in a certain period of time. But if we go back to before time, there's no period of time in which it could happen. That's true. There is this formalism, uh, mathematics, and the words that I'm saying are not uh, necessarily give an adequate description of the math. But, uh, but basically, you, can ask, you cannot ask, of course, you cannot sit there in nothing with no time and, uh, and watch for universes uh, to pop out. However, the universe could, uh, this newly born universe can have different shape. They, it can be filled with different types of matter. And you can ask, what is the probability for the universe to pop out with this or that kind of initial state? So basically, you, you don't calculate the probability per time, but you calculate the probability for the different initial conditions of the universe. Hmm. You're listening to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atia, and I'm speaking with the cosmologist Alex Valenkin. He's written a new book called Many Worlds in One, The Search for Other Universes. Alex, let's back up a moment. You were born in the former Soviet Union, where you studied physics as an undergraduate, but you were not able to get a graduate degree in the Soviet Union. Why not? Um, well, uh, I applied to graduate school, and actually some my professors encouraged me to apply uh, to graduate school. Uh, initially, it looked like I had too many offers, so I was worried that I would accept one and you know run into an awkward situation. But uh, things turned out to be much simpler. The... Uh, there was uh, actually some file for me in the KGB, which uh, I'm not sure exactly what it is. They don't send you a letter saying that you are blacklisted. But I couldn't get into graduate school, and I couldn't even get uh, any decent job. They liked you, these universities, and they wanted you, but then suddenly the KGB comes knocking and says, oh, scratch him off the list? Um, uh, this is actually what happened because I already passed the exams. There you pass exams for graduate school. And uh, I was told that I'm admitted and it was in an institute where one needed to have a pass to go in and you have to apply and wait when you get this pass. And I waited and waited and waited uh, for several months and then they told me that they eliminated that position in graduate school. What do you think you did Alex, to irritate the KGB? Um, well, uh, you know, uh, I probably have to disappoint you. I wasn't a dissident and a freedom fighter or anything like that. It could be that I made a, you know, a joke uh, in, uh, in their own company, and it could be anything. They, they don't tell you what it is. Your ideas about physics and cosmology are quite cutting edge. Do you think it's possible that you were pushing boundaries that uh, were uncomfortable for, for the Soviets? At that time, I, uh, the top of my career was a job of a night watchman in a zoo. Since I couldn't get into graduate school, um, well, I went to the army, and then um, 
I had some odd jobs, uh, so uh, no dangerous ideas, uh, no creation of universes. <laughs> it all happened uh, already in the U.S. Now Einstein, if I may say, had a somewhat similar problem. He was working as a patent clerk, as we all know, in Bern, Switzerland in 1905, when he had his first brilliant breakthrough. You are a night watchman at a zoo, not exactly what you were trained for. Did that give you the chance to think about physics in a different way? Uh, sure. I, I surely thought about physics. It wasn't easy because my colleagues uh, were basically in Russia, you know, drinking is a big thing. So if you refuse to drink with someone, uh, it's taken as an offense. So uh, I had to keep their company. Um. Some, some watchmen. <laughs> well, sure. Yeah, it, it's a huge zoo. And uh, there was a rifle, which I had no idea how to shoot. And uh, it was no way I could uh, stop anybody from stealing anything. So um, basically, I was sitting there and hoping for the best. Were you angry or were you somewhat accepting of, of the dynamic? You know, I was, uh, I can tell you that I was uh, very happy when I got out of there. And uh, how did you get out? How did you come here? They were um, happy to see you go? They were not particularly happy. I, I applied uh, for immigration. Just This was the Jewish immigration. So it was a period when very many people left. And um, I applied. They hold me there for almost a year. My wife's parents lost their jobs. So it wasn't... I, you would think that why would they keep a night watchman? I, I don't know. But uh, in the end, uh, they let me go. And, uh, of course, I, I was very happy because this uh, U.S. is the best place to do physics. You came to America. In one year, you got a Ph.D. And then the next year, you were at Tufts here as a faculty member. I'm wondering if here in America, you have it all felt like an outsider to not only the country and the culture, but to the, the camp of physics, because specifically many of your ideas about cosmology have been way ahead of their time, and they were not accepted then. They were, as you mentioned earlier, laughed at occasionally, but now they are accepted. Is this something, is this an evolution that you have experienced? Um, maybe since you mentioned it, I should comment on that. I certainly am an outsider to American culture, but uh, I should say that um, I never expected uh, such a friendly reception as I actually got in this country. I thought that I'll come to U.S. and, uh, you know, we'll start washing dishes and I'll look around and maybe at some point we'll start uh, return back to physics. Uh, but, um, you know, I didn't... Uh, feel that I was at any disadvantage at all, being a foreigner, being an immigrant. So it was wonderful in that regard. And people were extremely helpful and friendly. Um, now, in terms of being an outsider in physics, um, I, I think it helped that uh, I worked, you know, as a night watchman. And was, uh, it helped to develop my kind of personal uh, view of things. So um, everything... At least many, most things have both pluses and minuses. And being out of physics, uh, mainstream physics had many minuses. This is probably one plus that you develop maybe a unique perspective. These ideas initially were not well uh, 
Well, I wouldn't say they were not well received. People thought they were cute, you know, about the creation of the universe. <laughs> One uh, friend of mine, Lawrence Krauss, when he was at a talk, when I gave this talk at Harvard, uh, about the creation of the universe from nothing, and he came up to me after the talk and he said, it's amazing to give a talk like that and survive. <laughs> <laughs> but let me ask you, why is the idea that the universe was created from nothing, such a controversial idea. Obviously, before something is created, there is nothing. I mean, just as a sort of an intellectual concept. What did they think was there before the creation of the universe? Well, uh, physicists kind of uh, naturally think that the universe existed forever. What about it, the it Big Bang? Big Bang was a big problem, actually, for many <laughs> physicists. And... Uh, before uh, these, uh, the ideas of Big Bang were developed, of course, everybody thought the universe is eternal. After that, people thought that this is just one of those questions you don't ask. What happened at the Big Bang? You know, uh, there is a mathematical singularity in the equations. You cannot extend the equations beyond that. So physicists were uncomfortable about this thing. But um, after a while, they get used to the fact that this is not something you discuss. But of course, this is only true up to a point when you figure out the way to ask the right question. And uh, physicists are very flexible that way. When they see that uh, the issue can now be addressed, they turn around reasonably fast. You're listening to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atia, and I'm speaking with the physicist Alex Vilenkin. Alex, tell us about how it will all end. What do you think will happen? Well, this uh, issue has uh, undergone some evolution. There are basically uh, two possible ends for the universe, for, for our local part of the universe. Uh, none of them actually is particularly pleasant. One is that the universe will uh, stop expanding and it starts contracting and will recollapse. As it starts collapsing, the temperature will rise and uh, in the end uh, everybody will fry. But uh, by that time, the stars will be long since dead, so probably we, won't, we shouldn't worry about the details of this. And another possibility is that the universe will keep expanding forever, and in that case, the temperature will go down, and uh, stars will die, and everything will freeze. So it's fire or ice. But um, I think, uh, according to this picture of the multiverse, the answer is uh, that it's... Uh, going actually to end in, in fire. And it is because of the energy of the vacuum. The uh, energy of the vacuum, as I mentioned, now it is very small, but it's positive number. But according to this theory, there is a whole range. There is a lot of states of the vacuum with higher vacuum energies and a lot of them with lower uh, vacuum energies. Uh, when the energy is high, you have inflation and the universe expands at tremendous rate. But when the energy of vacuum is large and negative, the universe contracts at similarly tremendous rate and collapses. And you said it's slightly positive. Now it's slightly positive, but since there are lower energies, eventually we are going to get there. And uh, our part of the universe is going to recollapse. But the entire universe will not end. So this is our local affair. Each part of the universe will go from inflation to a region like ours or maybe somewhat different from ours because of different uh, constants of nature. And in the end, it will uh, end up uh, collapsing to a big crunch. 
Before that happens, though, you wrote in your book that our galaxy, the Milky Way, will most likely merge with the Andromeda galaxy. 100%. (laughs) (laughs) And after that, a bubble wall might smash into us, turning us all into alien particles. Uh, That's true. This is the question of how do we get to this negative energy. And the most likely process is a bubble nucleation. Uh, um, And what is that? Well, it is like bubble in water, you know, when water boils, bubbles spontaneously form. Uh, but here in, in the in vacuum, the probability for bubble nucleation is extremely small. So it takes an enormous uh, trillions and trillions of years for this bubble, and, and maybe a lot longer for a bubble to form. But once it forms, it expands at a speed close to the speed of light, so it hits you without warning. And it's so fast that we don't know it's coming. That's right. And once it's, it hits us, we are inside this bubble, but inside that bubble the particles we are made of now cannot exist. It's some alien form of matter, so we will be totally annihilated. Well, this will probably happen, as I said, when uh, we are no longer around, when the stars are dead and so forth. Reincarnation. We will be transformed into alien particles. That's true. And then after that is the big crunch. Is that more or less the the story? That's right. (laughs) Well, Alex Valenkin, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atiyah, and I've been speaking with the physicist Alex Valenkin. Thanks for listening.